I'm Andrea Miller, and I want to welcome you to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. If this is your first time joining me, you've picked a great episode to jump in and listen. If you've been a longtime listener, I think you will find this conversation to be one of the most powerful and must-listen-to episodes. My guest today is a brave woman who has used her voice to speak out and empower a generation of other women to do the same thing. Emily Joy co-founded the Church 2 Hashtag a Me Too spinoff exposing sexual abuse in Christian churches and other faith communities. In this episode, Emily shares her story of being raised in the fundamentalist evangelical church and what led her to finally speak out publicly against the abuse she experienced from her youth pastor when she was in her teens. We also talk about the impact purity culture has had in her life and her work to give voice to issues of sexual abuse in church settings. Finally, we talk about how we can start to change the narrative going forward in our churches and with our own daughters and sons. Emily, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk to you today. And this interview has been, I've rescheduled so many times mm-hmm. with all my life stuff. And I just uh, thank you again for sticking with me because you have mm-hmm. such an important message and story that needs to be heard. No, thank you. Well, I will give you your formal introduction. Emily is a spoken word poet, a yoga teacher, an activist. Her advocacy takes place at the intersection of faith, sexuality, and healing. And one of the biggest things you're known for is you're the co-creator of the Church 2 hashtag, which is a spinoff of the Me Too hashtag, which exposes sexual abuse in the church and faith communities. So we'll talk about how you got to that point by sharing your story. But before we do that, can you just tell me about your day-to-day, where you live, who you live with, what you do, all that? Yeah. Um, so I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I live with my partner, Caitlin, and my dog, Harley. I work at a church. Um, Caitlin is in seminary, and that's kind of what we do right now. Okay. And you're still busy monitoring all the church too, hashtag and what's happened with that. And do you have a book coming out too? Yes. Okay. So my book will be out um, with Broadleaf, which is the brand new imprint of 1517. So basically a lot of those books were previously under Fortress, but Broadleaf is kind of their new imprint for nonfiction that they just announced. So I'm very excited to be like on that. And so we just switched over and that will be out. We, we don't have an exact date yet, but it will be the spring of 2021. I just finished up writing about three weeks ago and wow. uh, I'm kind of in the editing stage right now. Okay. So you're very busy with that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go ahead. We'll dive into your story and let's start way back with your childhood because I know that affects the other parts of your story. So talk to me yeah. about your family, where you were raised, church involvement in your life, all of that. Yeah. Um, so I was raised um, in central Illinois and I am the oldest of seven. Uh, I was homeschooled until I was 16. My dad was a Southern Baptist youth pastor when I was born and then went on to start his own nonprofit where he basically traveled around to different churches and conferences and camps and all that sort of thing and did volunteer training. And, um, you know, that, that was our life. You know, we were basically... Um, <clears throat> stateside missionaries essentially because we were support raised and so you know a lot of a lot of my time at home you know over breaks and stuff was spent like doing mailings at the kitchen table out to all of our supporters like giving them updates and asking for money because that was how you know we brought it in and so um so yeah that was kind of my my life there and then um when I was 16, I started to go to um, community college. And then a couple years after that, I moved to Chicago 
to attend Moody Bible Institute. Okay, so all of your upbringing and light early life was spent in a very conservative evangelical Christian environment. Home. Very much. And we, I mean, we were in church, like, not just like Sunday morning, but like Sunday night and Wednesday night and Tuesday morning Bible study and like Saturday night youth activities and like li- multiple times a week for, you know, a decade and a half. Yeah. And when you're telling this story, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of my 16 year old that (laughs) poor thing. I homeschool her. She's very much. But I mean, that's part of the reason I want to talk to you and share your story, because I'm hoping to change the narrative for her story. Absolutely. As a daughter raised in the Bible Belt and Mm -hmm. the messages she's hearing. So that's the foundation of what you were raised. Can you go back to, though, like when you were 16 and what happened? And then we'll share later about you sharing that 10 years later. But you're 16, going to church. Absolutely. So we we were going to, um, well, we went to a lot of different churches. We had, we had involvement with, you know, several churches in the area, just based on some of the social groups that we were a part of. Um, but the main church that we went to as like, um, the one that we went to consistently, I would say, um, was a non-denominational evangelical megachurch that was sort of modeling itself after like Willow Creek in Chicago and Bill Hybels, who also recently was, um, exposed to be a sexual predator, but but yeah, so they, they really wanted to, to kind of be Willow. So, so, you know, if Willow did something, we did something. Um, and it was, we were sort of following in their footsteps. And it wasn't as big as Willow. I would say like, I mean, the auditorium could maybe hold like three or 4,000 people. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as widespread or big as Willow. I think now, I mean, I haven't been back in a very long time. I understand they have multiple campuses now, which wasn't the case then. But, but yeah, so anyway, we were going to that church and in that high school youth group was where um, I began to be groomed by an older youth leader who was in his 30s. He wasn't um, the pastor, like he wasn't on the payroll or anything, which is, I assuming, why, I'm assuming why he probably never got a background check. Although there's nothing that would have come up, you know, as with a lot of sexual right. predators, right. there's nothing that would have come up on a background check for somebody who's preying on people in church. That's why. Right. You know, and I back, want to talk about, right. yeah, <laughs> background checks are not too, enough. Like... <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so, so he was this like older youth volunteer in his 30s and he was like the cool one. Like everybody loved him. He was, you know, everybody's favorite volunteer and like made friends with all the parents, even employed some of the students um, to work for his business. He was like a photographer. And so, yeah, it was, he was just very like deeply entrenched in the life of the, of the community there. And so, you know, it came to a head when I was 16. It's hard to say really kind of like when the grooming began, it had to have been at least a year or two before because it takes time, you know? And I remember even like maybe six or eight months before it all really got bad. Like I remember talking to him about my relationships and like him like convincing me to break up with one of my boyfriends and like looking back I'm like oh that's like none of his business right and, and there's such, was, there's blurry yeah. lines anyway with the youth leaders because they become so especially high school so entrenched yeah. in life and like are they get that good friend like what is going on well so. and of course you want to be able to talk to your youth leaders about stuff because and a lot of times you can't talk to your parents about stuff like right. especially in an evangelical context like parents tend to not be safe people they, there tends to not be a sense that you can um, speak to your parents without incurring consequences, unfortunately. And so, so yeah, even more so it's like the boundaries there are, you know, confusing when you're in them. And so, so yeah, I mean, so it started earlier, but you know, then eventually he started to like explicitly pursue a romantic relationship with me and like told me about his, you know, supposed feelings 
you know, I didn't know at the time that this was something that he had done before and had done, has done multiple times since. You know, I'm definitely not the only victim of this, of him that I know of. I know several others who have come to me in the years since. And so, so obviously at the time, you know, it's like very confusing when you're 16 because you can't talk to your parents about anything. I didn't have, you know, I, I didn't have any sex education. Nobody, the, the word consent, I don't even think I knew. You know, there was, there's no part of me that, that should have known like, oh, a 16 year old can't consent to a romantic relationship with, uh, with a 30, with a 30 something year old who is a spiritual leader in a religious context. And not only that, I think my, uh, a lot of victims of this type of abuse tend to have like the fawn response of flight. This is a new thing, right? So people are talking about fight, fight or flight over the years we've added freeze. Fawn is another one that people are starting to talk about. And it's kind of like where you attach yourself to the person as a way of managing the feelings about it, right? Because it's like, he was this person that I trusted and respected. And if what he was doing was bad, then he was bad, you know? And then my, and then my whole understanding of like what was good and bad in the world was not true. And I couldn't trust the church. I couldn't trust my leaders, you know, all this type of stuff. Yeah. There's so and, many dynamics that play with a 16 year old. I mean, yeah. I have my own daughter and I'm like, yeah, that power different. I mean, and we'll dive into that, like yeah. what, what the patriarchal culture and the sexism and purity culture played into that part of your story. But, yeah. Yes, well, and it's, it's complicated too. Cause like at 16, you kind of, you kind of think of yourself as like an adult, you know, right. that's when you're starting to differentiate yourself. That's when you can get in your car and drive somewhere by yourself. You know, like there's a lot of right. aut- autonomy, but like developmentally, you're still a child, you know, your prefrontal <laughs> cortex is not even anywhere remotely close to being formed. So what did you, so this went on for a long period of time. So not what, really a long oh, period of time. Okay, no, but he, groomed was, you for a, he groomed you for a while. The grooming, the grooming yes. was, yeah, the grooming was very much like, like a long, you know, boiling a frog one degree at a time type of thing. But, but the actual thing itself was, I don't know, maybe a month. It didn't really last a, a whole ton of time. And, and thankfully, I mean, during that time, he did not, it, he was getting there. The, the physical closeness was ramping up, but he was not able to sexually assault me before it was discovered, um, which was, which is another reason I think why I didn't talk about it for a really long time, because I didn't know what category to put it in. Um, yeah, and I think that's such a good point. Cause you're like, well, he didn't really abuse me. Mm-hmm. Did he like, because he didn't touch me or sexually, you know, like yeah. me. So you wrestled with that too. Like probably questioning. Did, did yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And, and, and so it's just like, you don't, you don't know what to talk. And like, I knew it was traumatizing because later I would talk to, I would talk to a therapist. The first ter- therapist I ever talked to was like, well, are you sure you didn't get raped? Because you're talking exactly like someone who got raped. Wow. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm sure. But like, this is what, this is what I'm saying. There's a lot of layers here. And so, so yeah, so it was just like that happened. And then, and so uh, to this day, you know, my parents were not really big fans of like telling the truth a whole lot about things. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, I'm not really super sure how they found out that what was happening, but I, one they of the did. Th- but right. And one how. of the things that you shared that struck me was you got in trouble, your parents. Mm-hmm. And- well, yeah. So then they called me, they called me into my room and like, just like railed into me and was like telling me what a, like, what a bad thing I'd done and how like messed up I was and like, you know, all this stuff. And I think, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it was they were worried about 
you know, their reputation. Absolutely. My dad is such like a big person in the community. And I think some of it was like a little troubling to them because like low key, my dad is my, my dad was my mom's youth pastor and that's how they met. And so there's like a layer there of like, I don't know if they've reckoned with their, you know, I think they have a marriage where they like each other, you know, like they, you know, they've always gotten along. But yeah, I think it, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they've reckoned, I don't know if they've reckoned with the genesis of their relationship at all. And so, but that so I'm yeah. sure, but that, that reaction from your parents definitely put you into shame for that. And made I think you it was worse like than the thing itself. I think sure, their I reaction to that was worse than the, I mean, the thing itself was, was bad, but if they had handled it appropriately, I think it could have, it could, there could have been a lot of harm reduction happening there. Right. Um, and I think but, that's yeah. the lesson for all of us. Like, how are yeah. we going to respond to that if that's our daughter? And not that way, because it's not a 16-year-old's fault. Yeah. No, you can't stop bad things from happening, but you can definitely not make it worse. And so tell me what happened with him. Did, I mean, life just went on, right? He was yeah, so he volunteering did have to, or working there. I mean, he did have to leave the youth group, but nobody knew why. So like okay. in an ideal situation, obviously the church would like tell all of the parents in the entire youth group, like, hey, sorry, we had a sexual predator working with your kids and we didn't know you need to talk to your children and like see if anything happened with them but that's not what happened I think they told they told a couple of the elders I think and so some of the elders told their kids so there ended up being this really like hostile gossipy mm-hmm. environment in the youth group where some people knew what happened and some people didn't mm-hmm. and definitely parents were not informed in the ways that they should have been um, he was made to leave but there was no there was no consequences for it so he went on to work at other churches I, I don't know where he is now um i googled him a couple years ago and he was working at a church in michigan but but yeah he definitely still went on to work with other churches and other youth groups and definitely still preyed on people and so typical in other stories of what happens with the perpetrators as Mm -hmm. far as the church putting it under the rug and letting him go on and not handling it right and there's like you said so many layers to this and we'll dive into a few of those why that goes on but let's fast forward then 10 years, uh, you were 20, how old were you? 26 when you hashtagged and shared? Yeah. Okay. I just turned 29. So yeah. Okay. So about three years ago, you kept this to yourself, dealt with the trauma, the shame of it on your own, which just added more to your, it added more to the trauma, really having to keep it to yourself. So then what, tell me what was going on when you decided, you know what, I'm going to share this. I'm just putting it out on Twitter. I know, talk about the Me Too when that was out at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, the first, the first little bit of time there, I literally um, wasn't allowed to talk about it. I was forbidden by my parents from speaking to anyone about it, except for my two friends that already knew who were like really close to me. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I was not, I was forbidden from talking to anyone. And even after I remember, um, I went to college and I moved, I, you know, I moved away and my parents are not wealthy. My whole family is not, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of like wealth in my family. And so, um, I, I wasn't having my college paid for by anybody. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I was paying my own way through college. So I, here I am living in Chicago, paying my own way through college, not financially dependent on anyone. And, my dad found out that I had told a couple of my college friends about it and he was really upset with me. And I was like, I'm literally an adult and I am in another city paying my own way. Like you don't get to tell me anymore who I can and cannot share this part of my story with. But I don't know, like I said, like, so even after, so at that point I started talking to like friends about it. You know, I would, when I would date someone, when we would get close enough, I would share that even 
went to therapy when I was, I started therapy when I was like 25 or yeah, 25. Talked to my therapist about it and that sort of thing. And so like, by the time I, I got into my later twenties, it wasn't a thing that I was like shamed and embarrassed of, you know, I just, right. I, I just didn't have a category for it. Right. And I was right. always wondering like, what is the utility of coming forward with this? And, you know, I even, I even tried, like I had written a couple of essays about it and like submitted them places and they like didn't get picked. And so I was like, okay, maybe now is not the time, you know, like I had thought about it over the years, but it was just kind of like, I don't really know what to do, with what it. to do with yeah. this. What so, they, I don't have a mental filing cabinet for this. So at that time, when you did share the me too stories, you were paying attention to those, right? Was that kind of an inspiration for you? That was basically it. Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, I guess we're doing this now. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess this is, I guess just naming your abuser online is a thing that we're doing now. And so, so that's what I did. So uh, that yeah, empowered was, you and that you made a tweet that said, do you, do you want to tell, just say, I mean, I know exactly what it said. Do you want to say generally kind of what the tweet said well, that you put out? Yeah, I was like, I, it was that day and I had, I don't even remember who it was because um, I don't, you know, I was homeschooled, so I don't know any names of like movie stars or people are like, this this movie star got accused of X, Y, Z. And I was like, who? I've never seen that. So I don't even remember the names of who it was, but it was like two or three other dudes like in Hollywood yeah. who had gotten accused that day. And it was just like really overwhelming. And I was like, man, like, <laughs> should, should I do this right now? So I was like, well... I don't know. I guess, I guess it, it felt like the time. And I had, I had texted on like a little group chat of like, should I out my abuser on Twitter right now? And of course, you know, like that saying like behind every great woman is a, is a group chat hyping her up. Um, <laughs> They're all like, yes, yes. do it, Emily. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, did that. And so then, yeah, I tweeted, I was like, this is me being brave. Uh, this is me standing on the shoulders of all the other people that have been brave this week and this month. And, you know, here's my story. And I, I really just expected it to, you know, I, you know, I had a moderate Twitter following. So I was like, I feel like my friends are going to read this, like, you know, whatever, yeah. definitely did not, definitely did not expect it to go viral. But, you know, I woke up the next morning to like thousands and thousands of tweets. And it's basically been like one of my part-time jobs yeah. ever since. I mean, you had to be shocked. Like, were you shocked or not? I mean, not shocked by the ubiquity of the stories. I knew yeah. that because, because I had been a part of like the, you know, progressive Christian and post-Christian internet communities for, for years at that point, like on all the right. homeschool community, like I knew those stories were out there. We all knew them, you know, yeah. everybody, everybody whispers to their friends, like, Hey, don't, don't hang out with that guy. You know, like we all know that these stories are out there. So I was not at all surprised about the ubiquity of them. I knew that, but I was surprised that people were finally paying attention. I think that's the, that's the, um, that testifies to like the incredible work of like Toronto Burke and the me too campaign. It's just that like, people are actually, it's not that these stories were not out there. We all knew they were out there, but right. like the work that they've done means that people are actually paying attention now, which means that consequences can happen. Maybe not as many as we would have liked, maybe not as much as they deserve, maybe not as fast as we would have liked, but, but like stuff is happening. Exactly. And it's, I mean, it's so powerful. I'll read something I read from an article. It said the church Two hashtag has created a virtual place for a conversation about sexual abuse in the church to happen on a scale that's larger and more open than anything we've seen in religious spaces since the pedophilia scandal in the Catholic church in the nineties and early two thousands. So mm -hmm. it's big and it's powerful. And you creating that, like you said, you're not surprised because you know it's happening, but the number of people just coming forward. So let's dive in to talk about the church culture and the part that that plays into your story in the last yeah. half hour. So, I mean, I'd say the two biggest things, obviously purity culture is sexism, male leadership, all of that 
that is just stressed and is set up in the evangelical church. So let's first talk about this, the sexism, patriarchal culture. I mean, they're kind of tied together. Yeah. To um, me, I would say it's basically it's patriarchy and sexism is like a part of that. Okay. Or you know what I'm saying? Like to me, yeah, to me, it's somehow, I'm trying to think of how I would, how I would explain it best, but like purity culture is this big tree with a lot of different branches and maybe like patriarchy and sexism is like around the trunk, you know, it's like the big part of it. Okay. Well, let's talk, then let's talk about you give like as a definition of purity culture and then we'll Um, talk about I will give you my elevator pitch definition. I've been working on this. It's It's not perfect, but I would say that purity culture is mandatory sexual abstinence until legal monogamous heterosexual marriage or else. And there's always an or, there's always an or else, right? Now what that or else is will vary depending on your community because some communities are more like or else you're going to burn in hell and other communities are like or else no one will want to marry you or else you'll get an STD or else like you know there's all but there's always some kind of like stick right. that they're shaking at you to say and, you have to do this. And this is what is typically taught and I will readily admit this is what I the, what I taught my currently now 17 year old several years ago because this yeah. is which is what I thought mm-hmm. this is what is taught in the evangelical church so well, and it's not just what is taught but it's like what is implied yes, you're right it's what's you're implied right. that's like the only it's a the given only yeah it's like it's like to question it would be like to question if God exists you know like it's, right. it's on that level of this is the only possible way to interpret the Bible so here you go you have to do it and I think that's kind of why I fell into it like we moved here six years ago from the Bible Belt my daughter or to the Bible Belt my daughter was, was she 12 or 13 at that time so it was like okay I need to have this talk with her we did the passport to purity thing Mm -hmm. because I didn't know like I'm like well I I personally wasn't really raised in the church so I was just like okay well this is what everybody's doing around here I mean my mom tried to take us to church my dad anyway that's a whole other story (laughs) but it's like what I was determined I'm going to raise my kids in the church and moving here and getting involved in the church it was like okay this is what we teach our kids Mm -hmm. so took her away taught her that and but now this whole deconstructing of faith the last couple of years. I'm so glad that I still have this girl at home to now like retalk and relearn some things. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm sure some people listening to this are being like, what, why would the purity culture like play into this trauma and the sexual abuse? So talk about that. And I know there's so many layers of yeah. that, but let's just, well, I did, broad. I did just write uh, 50,000 words about that question. <laughs> this is why you're going to speak to your book and we're going to yeah. link up articles. But um, I think some people though, this, this could be a little bit shocking too. some people are probably like, well, yeah, of course it does. I mean, well, I'm, yeah, a lot t- of people, a lot of people on the internet have asked me like, okay, Hey, like I, I want, I want to, I want my kids to be abstinent until they get married and I want to keep teaching purity culture, but I, but I don't want to, you know, contribute to the problem of church too. So how can I do that? How can I make sure my kids are abstinent? And my answer is you can't. And that doesn't bode well coming from someone who's 29 and childless. So I usually pass them over to somebody like Tina Shermer Sellers, who is a friend of mine <laughs> who does a lot of this kind of stuff professionally, who is a parent and has a PhD, you know, so there's, right. there's that type of thing. But, but yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard thing because people really want to hold on to this purity culture stuff with a white knuckle grip, but it's not going to save you. You know what I'm saying? And it's not going to save your kids. And the reason that purity culture is a part of church too, is that um, abuse thrives in darkness and in silence and in shame. And the teachings of purity culture foster all of those things. When you're told that sexual, I mean, sexuality is a really big thing, you know, it's a big, powerful force inside of a human person. And when you tell someone that they have to 
push this sexuality that's so big into this tiny little box. And if you can't fit it in there, if you can't do what is appropriate, if you can't follow the rules, then you're bad and you're shameful and you're sinful and God's mad at you and you're dirty and you are like a chewed up piece of gum and you are, you know, all these things that we talk about in purity culture and even, even teachings that aren't chewed up. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, well, you know, I teach my kids to be abstinent, but I don't tell them about the chewed up piece of gum thing. And I'm like, well, you're just doing the same thing, but nicer, you know, that's like, it's benevolent purity culture, but it's still purity culture. And so, so yeah, I mean, the number one reason is because abuse thrives in darkness and in silence and in shame and purity culture fosters all of those things. Um, and it's but, putting, yeah. oh, go ahead. I was no, just saying, and it's, okay. And it's putting such a, such an emphasis on a woman's need to stay pure, to be important, to be worthy of marriage, to be worthy of a man. And it's putting, giving women the responsibility to dress modestly, all of those Absolutely, things. Absolutely. Yeah. Modesty is chapter one. And I think people forget about that one because once you get out of evangelicalism and you start wearing whatever you want, you forget about the modesty thing. But like, I think modesty is a huge part of it. And that's, that's my first chapter in the book. But the other thing is this, um, you know, I think that the response to a lot, like, for example, when you look at, like, um, the way that the Southern Baptist Church has um, responded to the revelation of quite literally hundreds and hundreds of cases of sexual abuse in their churches, um, is to say that those people were not following Baptist theology. They were not following the Bible. They were not following, you know, purity. They were doing, but, but I actually beg to differ. I think abuse, the, the type of abuse that we're talking about in church two situations is actually a direct result of purity culture rather than like a, a bug in the system. It's, it's a feature and it's, it's a very reasonable sexual abuse is a very reasonable result of purity culture because when you look at like even there's so many ways you could do this and I do like I said 50,000 words but like just for example let's take the modesty thing as a as an example here so when you teach that women need to dress modestly what you are saying is that there's a there's a reason for that right it's not just like a it's not just like a silly little rule that we do because we know women need to dress modestly in order to protect men in order to protect themselves because their dressing modestly is a way of loving their brothers not you know their their metaphorical brothers and so what you're saying then is that first of all men don't have a responsibility <laughs> to dress modestly to anyone. Um, but you're also saying that women are the gatekeepers of men's sexual purity. And then when abuse happens and a woman is blamed or not believed, then we all, everybody's rings their hands and is like shocked. And they're like, gasp, why is this happening? And I'm like, this is happening as a direct result of your teaching. This isn't even like somebody misapplied it or, you know, was just taught it badly. This is a direct result of like the orthodoxy quote unquote, that you teach. Yeah. And I've seen that with my own daughter. I mean, she's been told this year, she's still, like I said, we have, we left the church. We were attending here for the last couple of years for another church, but my daughter still goes to Wednesday night youth and she leads worship. And she was told she needed to not wear low cut shirts anymore. <laughs> she needed to wear like not tight fitting shirts. And I've seen it with her. And yeah, it's That's so like, unfortunate. it's so unfortunate. And I know, and it's like, we struggle, we do struggle with that. Cause you don't, I don't know. That's a hard thing as a mom. Cause I also don't want her to be like, she's been had sexual comments at her. She's, I mean, she's had the things she's told me boys at youth group have said to her. Yeah. And I think that, and then but I think any woman could tell you like, 
I've been, I've been catcalled wearing yeah. like a little black dress walking down downtown Nashville. And I've been catcalled wearing sweatpants and an oversized right. hoodie in the grocery store. You and know, I think that's such a good <laughs> point. So that's what it goes back to. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Like that's, and again, as a mom, I wrestle with this. Like I know yeah. what you're saying and it's like, oh, but that's such a good point to come back to. Like it doesn't matter what you're wearing. No, what I'm wearing has never protected me from sexual harassment ever. And that is such a good point. So what, okay, I do want to come back to to a couple things with this. But again, as a mom, I'm, I wrestle a little bit as a 16-year-old. I'm going back on so many things that I taught her. So what what do we teach our daughters? Like yeah. our mom is a 17-year-old. I keep forgetting she's 17. So do I teach her wear whatever you want and have sex with whoever you want? I know that's the extreme. I'm not, yeah. But I'm saying like that's where I'm trying to figure out. So what what do we teach to not breathe yeah. So, I mean, there's on the one hand, like in the book I just wrote, I don't, I don't go so far as to, I don't go so far as to like lay out a sexual ethic. That's an alternative to purity culture, because I think that everybody has to do that for themselves. Right. And I think it's going to be different because like, if y'all are, if y'all are engaged in like the life of the church, that's going to be different. Maybe that how you conceive of your sexual ethic is going to be different. Maybe than an atheist family, you know, who maybe is not involved. So I think everybody is allowed to kind of like go on their own journey with this. But I will say this, children are people (laughs) and people have agency and there's no, there's no way to control. Control is not love. And so you don't get to have both. You can have control or you can have love, but you can't have both. And the thing is empowering young people with the actual information about sex tends to like, if you look at the outcomes for for like abstinence only sex ed, they actually have sex at just about the exact same time as people who don't, but they use less protection and have higher rates of pregnancy and STDs because they're scared of using condoms. They don't know how, you know, they don't know how to advocate for themselves because they haven't been taught that their body is their own and they can say yes and no to the kind of sexual interaction that they would like and not like to have, you know? And so it's, always better to give kids the information. And if you give them the information and tell them you can have sex with whoever you want, they're likely going to not. <laughs> or yeah. if they do, they will be very safe about it. Because here's the reality. Like, I don't think that sex is nothing. I don't think that sex is meaningless, but it's certainly not this big thing that church has made it out to be my whole life. If It's just kind of somewhere in the middle. Like it's both, it's both meaningful and kind of not. Like it's, it's both biological and it's both spiritual. Like there, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if you've read, um, or if you haven't, you should, um, it just came out Matthias Roberts book, Beyond Shame. Roberts is a friend of mine, also a therapist, um, and just wrote this book. And he talks about that, the paradoxes of sex in there, in his book he talks about, and this is kind of like a paradox of sex, I think, right? It is both at the same time. And I think, but sex is kind of like a big deal, you know, and it's it's serious. And especially if you are having the kind of sex that can get one party pregnant, you know, then it's even more of a big deal. And so there's a, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. And I think when you're honest with young people about the responsibility and give them like the actual information and say, okay, now you do get to decide what you want to do. Nine times out of 10, they're going to make a better decision. And when they don't, here's the thing. I think some, I, I think so much of the parental hand-wringing around of this comes out of a really good place of wanting to prevent your child from hurting because you yeah. love them. <laughs> and that's a good impulse, but it's like, you can't stop somebody from getting hurt. And, and the thing is like, sometimes the hurt, I mean, of course sex can hurt. Like it's, it's a, it's an important thing, but 
but also like that's how you learn that's how you grow that's how you build resiliency it's like if you never fell down you would never learn to walk you know there's it's, it's kind of like that a little bit like you just have to fall down sometimes and that's and that, okay and that's i mean i'm still working on it first one is kind of my experimental project here but it's I, we've gone from passport to purity lesson when mm-hmm. she was 13 to we're having open dialogue mm-hmm. and if you do decide yes then here are some things that can happen like and i see how it's changed our relationship that 13 14 she did not talk to me about any anything yeah. like scared to because it's like a shame and like mm-hmm. oh my gosh if i did anything i can't tell my mom she would think so less but now it's Absolutely. like talk about everything but i see that open dialogue and how it's changed and it's helped us so much not putting this emphasis on it and i know she's more honest and open with me and i don't ever want to shame her i mean i hear so many stories too that of women that have you know, had this put on them. This is the most important thing that you can give your husband remaining. Oh, yeah. And then what happens if you are, sure. right. What happens if you are raped or you do decide mm-hmm. to have sex? I mean, how much, it's just the layers of shame. And I just, if anything, I want moms in the church to be aware that this is not the message to keep sending out. And then like I brought up before, which I want to talk about is like you said, it's kind of the trunk of it as far as the sexism and the patriarchal culture, because that has been my biggest beef with the that the church was in the Bible Belt. I've been shocked. Women mm-hmm. can't be pastors. And I mean, ultimately, that's why we left the church we were at. And I know some people see it in this area as, well, it's not a big deal. Women can be used still, but it's so yeah. much deeper than it's just men being deal. pastors. Yeah. So talk about that, why that plays into women keeping silent and men having to be the leaders and why that plays into the sexual abuse culture. Yeah. Uh, anecdotally, when I was like three, I asked my dad if I could be a pastor and he said, you can be whatever you want to be. I just probably won't go to your church. Oh my God. <laughs> I have always laughed so hard about that because I'm like, well, pretty much it turned out to be true. I mean, I'll tell you, and I don't know if I'll, I'll probably leave this, who knows, but I just know my daughter listens to some of these and I don't want to be telling so much of her stuff, but yeah. her youth leader, he told her, no, you couldn't be a head pastor. I cannot even believe well, that that is anything, still going on. If she's anything like me, she'll just use it as fuel for the fire, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. She came home and so mad and pissed off and I'm like, good. Okay. Good. Yeah. At least you're pissed off by that. I mean, we were <laughs> <laughs> we're somewhere. So it's there. And that's what our girls are being told. And that's the message. So tell me why that play. I know, but you talk about why that. Yeah. Play. So, I mean, when you look at like, it, to, to me, it's like, tell me why the sky is blue. Like it's so, it's so self-evident to me. So for, for a really long time, when the popular imagination of sexual abuse in the church was the Catholic scandals, was this abuse of mainly boys and men. But, but we're seeing a much different trend in the church two stories that are coming out where it's by and large, mostly women. There, there are, you know, and there's lots of male victims and also non-binary victims. And I, I do interview a couple of male survivors in my book. But yeah, it's the gender dynamics that are coming out of church too are wildly skewed towards women being the victims of the abuse and men being the perpetrators. And so I think we need to reckon with that, that like so many of these churches that prohibit female leadership also have the highest level of abuse. And Say that so, again, Emily. Say that one more yeah. <laughs> so, so many of the churches that prohibit female leadership also have the highest levels of abuse yeah. of females. So yeah, it, I think you got to look at that and go, okay, why is this case? Now, that's not always the case because, you know, God knows, we have already mentioned him, but Bill Hybels, Willow Creek was one of the first kind of non-denominational evangelical megachurches to like go out of their way to ordain women elders. So like, it's not that this is not like an across the board, like, always 
100% of the time observation. But when you look at the numbers, I think that's something we have to be real about. To me, it's, it's, it's almost hard not to get cynical and feel like this whole thing is set up to like bring victims to perpetrators on a conveyor belt. Especially, within- especially when you look at like how many pastors, you know, exhibit symptoms of like narcissistic personality disorder and like these types of things. It really just feels like some of these denominations are set up to just bring victims on a silver platter. Right. And so when we're talking about the patriarchy culture and why some of the things with that men are set up to be leaders in the church and family, women are mm-hmm. to follow their lead. Women are to be submissive. Women are to be more yeah. silent. I mean, and if you think about it, that's like a perfect welcome sign. Uh for abusers because you're like here you can find a victim here and she's supposed to do what you tell her and be quiet about it right and it's like you said this is as apparent as the sky is blue but it's unfortunately not within the church until we keep talking about this and bringing this to light because again being in this culture here where well yes men can only be the leaders and the pastors and men should be the head of the home I've never saw as much fault with that as now I'm starting to yeah and like you just said this is all stuff that would of course set up perfectly for abusing and setting up a perpetrator perfectly. I talk about that and I'm like, I feel like that's hopeless though, because every church around here believes that. So well, it's yeah, like- so that's the problem is a lot of people are like, what can we do to fix this? And I'm like, you know, the, the sad reality of church too is this. I would say I, I'm comfortable saying the word most most churches are not going to be willing to do what it takes to change the culture. Some certainly, and I support them wholeheartedly, but most are not. And so when I look at, oh man, the other day, Caitlin went to a class at Div School and she, she came back, quoted, do you know Robin Henderson Espinoza? Yes. Yes. So Robin was, um, I think, guest lecturing in Caitlin's class. And Caitlin told me uh, that Robin said that theology is harm reduction. And to me, that's, I mean, that's, that speaks to like, my entire heart. You know what I'm saying? That's how I feel about theology. That's how I feel about religion. I'm like, this is harm reduction. So when I'm looking at this from a harm reduction perspective, I'm like, okay, well, how do, how do I get these churches to stop hurting people? If they're not going to change, I'm like, then maybe we need to help churches die well. Somebody wrote a, somebody wrote a blog about that, about being like pallbearers, uh, essentially. Yeah. I can't remember who it was. It was a man who wrote a blog like in the early days of church too. But yeah, I just, I, you know, I'm like, I want churches to stop hurting people. If they can do that while continuing to exist, then I support that. But if they can't, then, you know, I also support that. Right. And like you, I get, I mean, I do get somewhat discouraged, like, well, it's not going to change around here, but I think that we can look at that with anything, whether it's poverty or, I mean, oh, yeah. you have to do your part, like you doing the church to hashtag. I mean, that's part, yeah. a huge part well, of the That's the thing. It's like the get in where about, you fit in right. thing. That's right. just what and I talking know. talking about this, like why mm-hmm. it matters. So I think not keeping silent yeah. is a huge step and talking again, talking out, naming perpetrator. I mean, all of that. And not everybody is comfortable doing that. So that's okay too. But I do think not keeping silent and just being like, well, that's just how it is. I mean, it's it's key to this. And I know so many churches and you have a huge beef with this, the band-aids that we try to put on it because so many churches can say, well, we're going to up our reporting policy or our background checks. Right. What we were talking about at the beginning. I mean, that's what the SBC is doing right now. And they're like, we're going to, we're going to have better reportings. And I'm like, first of all, you got 10, your first round, I think their first round was like 10 churches that they were investigating and they only censured one even though I'm sure all 10 of those were legitimate. But also background checks would not have stopped anything that happened to me. And they typically um, don't. They don't typ- in churches. Typically I mean, religious. Still do, still do them, but... Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's what that's what the... I think that's the church that just got kicked 
kicked out of the SBC. I think that's what they got kicked out for. They had somebody who did, who was on the registry as a pastor. And I think I'm pretty sure that's what it was. But by and large, the vast majority of, of sexual abusers in pulpits and in churches do not have a legal background that you could, right. that you could ping by doing a background check. You know, right. they're not on the registry. They're not, none of this stuff. And making your reporting policies are also, you, you know, you should do background checks. Everybody should do background checks, right. but it's just not going to fix the problem that we're trying to fix right now. Also, making your reporting policies better is also something that every church should do. I don't think I've ever been involved with a church that I felt like had an adequate reporting policy. Very much that's something that everybody should do. However, if you are only focused on reporting, you are still coming at the problem from a reactive standpoint, not a preventative standpoint. You're still just being like, how can we react better to abuse that has already happened? Meanwhile, I'm saying you want to make your community hostile to abusers. You want abusers to come one visit in your community and go, oh, I can't I can't find a victim here. They are going to report me. They are going to, they have open conversations about sexuality. So it won't be a secret. You want to push abusers away by your culture, by your teaching, by your empowerment of women and queer folks. And right. It, so it could, we yeah. want, we want to get to the root causes of it. And to focus on prevention and not right. because the thing is, it's not, you can't ever prevent somebody from doing something bad if they're bound and determined to do it. Okay. Right. Some people are just bad but you can make it so that your community is not attractive to people who are abusive, who have nefarious intentions, who have you know narcissistic tendencies. You can make it so that your community is not one where sex is a source of shame and secrecy and where all of these things are whispered about in the darkness, but not spoken about out loud. You can make your community one where there's not the people in charge and the people who have to follow and do what they say. You know, you can, can, there are actual tangible things you can do to make your community one that is not attractive to abusers. Right. And all those, they really do circle back around to the purity culture and the sexism because if we're telling women they have to be silent in church and submit, I mean, that is not a breeding ground to report abuse or have women stand up for what they believe or want. Um, So it is very circular. I've read where you said that these things, the church response is with the background checks, the better reporting, it's just a Band-Aid on the Mm -hmm. bullet wound. And And it's it's Band-Aids we all got to do. I mean, but you have to address the bullet wound first, then you can put the Band-Aids on. Like definitely do the background checks, definitely have a good reporting policy. But if you're, if you're trying, if you got a bullet inside of your arm and you're just like Band-Aid, 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 you're going to get sepsis and die. Right. So what do you say going forward to, you know, people like me, give me some advice raising a 17 year old oh my God. In, in this world. I know you gave me a little bit earlier, but it, it is a hard, it's hard to navigate. I mean, I have my other daughter just turned 11 and I want to yeah. do it differently with her. And we have way more open dialogue. So just going forward with our girls and what we're teaching and I don't know. Give me some advice. <laughs> not a mom, but I know yeah. you're, you're endrenched in this and you're endrenched in, you know, the, the sex ed and loving our bodies to so talk a little bit. Yeah. Leave me with something, Emily. I mean, uh, with the caveat that I myself was 17, not too long ago. Uh, <laughs> no, that's um, true. I'm in my forties. So, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, I think, you know, there's two things. Most of all, I just, I wish that my parents would have taken my side, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, to me, it's really weird as I'm, you know, as I'm in conversations like with Caitlin about our future and, you know, talking about having kids and stuff, I just, I can't imagine giving birth to something and then being like, 
sorry, you made a decision that we don't like or believe a theology that we don't believe or like did something. And so like now you're like out of the good graces. Like that's just so weird to me. I just can't even like, I can't imagine giving birth to something and feeling that way. And so I just feel like take their side, you know, even if you have to um, be not on the side of a community or someone else. And also the second thing is to trust them enough to give them the information, give them the tools and allow them to build something with it. And it might not be what you would have built, but it will be theirs. And that will be more useful. That's powerful, Emily. That's, and what this, this mama's heart needs to hear is I'm navigating raising two girls in this culture and environment. And I do, I thank you not for, not just for telling me those things, but for your braveness with the hashtag and sharing your story and going along the side of other women who are, because I think that's the only way we're going to change this, this culture. And I thank, thank you. you for that. I appreciate that. So your book, like we said, comes out sometime next spring. So we'll keep an eye out for that. And then tell me where people can find you right now or connect with you. Yes. Um, so I'm Emily Joy Poetry on all the things on um, Instagram, on Twitter. If you go to my website, emilyjoypoetry.com, there's all kind of contact information and stuff. If you want to be on my mailing list, you can just find me on there and then you'll be the first to know like when pre-orders for the book and come out and all that kind of stuff. And usually when I'm doing like speaking events or poetry performances or things, I'll, um, I'll put that out there too in case I happen to be coming to your area. I'd also love to come to your area. So if you want to bring me to, I don't know, where whatever you do, your church, your conference, uh, your school, okay. you can contact me on my website. Well, we will link all of that up with the show notes, Emily. And again, I just thank you for coming and talking to me today. Thank you again, Emily. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening today. Emily's message is a powerful and relevant one, especially for those of us raising daughters and sons in the church. I encourage you to continue your own deep work on this subject. And if you're a survivor of abuse, to speak out. It's only when we share our stories and speak out that true, lasting change can start to happen.